This is Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Today, and asking very poignant questions about a group of people in society that seems to be very important at critical points and then not so important at other ones. What does it mean when black women in particular are positioned as, you know, the kinds of uh, defenders of politics during election time where they're tasked with this um, charge of, you know, writing injustice, turning out to vote, you know, so that everybody else's lives can be improved. Black women, you go and stand in line. We're counting on you. I it's believe. up to you. Yes, I believe Joe Biden said. At the same time, there are they are 300% more likely than white women to die during childbirth, trying to bring life into the world, according to the Center for Reproductive Justice. So this tells us something about the kind of selective visibility of black women at times when it best suits society mm-hmm. and certain groups of people. And this is something that has deep American roots. Jennifer Morgan, um, in her book, I actually recently reviewed it, she looks at the contradiction that is at the heart of the early creation of racial capitalism. Mm. So racism and capitalism in the Atlantic world. And she looked at the role black enslaved women played. They played a productive one as well as a reproductive one, meaning that they worked as laborers in the field and they were central to the profit creation in their work as growers of tobacco, sugar, cotton. But they also reproduced and produced capital through their uterus, through their children. And this, their children, their kin, that they were severed from, they were the, the center of the profit dreams of enslavers, mm. that black women would have babies to be the next set of capital. So that is a contradiction that is interesting because even as society is developing, it's negating the very basis on which society is turning is this negation of black women relationships to their children because that's profit. Mm -hmm. You just birthed another object. You just birthed another profit motive for your enslaver. And so it's this negation of, you know, kinship from an African context. And this was critical for establishing and maintaining the transatlantic slave trade. Capitalism, the transatlantic slave trade as we knew it, depended upon African women's productive and reproductive labor. And this was justified through how society legislated hereditary slavery. And we could think about it now in terms of how 
the legalities and um, economic ideas we have around welfare, welfare queen, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, around health institutions, around certain policies that are particularly racist towards black women, how it has this genealogy in this kind of um, early 17th century ideas. If you look at an early Virginia Act in 1662, it says, Whereas some doubts have arisen where whether children got by an Englishman upon a Negro woman shall be slave or free, be it therefore enacted and declared at this present grand assembly that all children born in this country shall be held bond or free according to the condition of the mother. This law was called Partus Sequarium Ventrum. And this was the law that essentially changed society, as at least British society, which is patriarchal. We all have our father's last names, right? It changed heritability for children born of enslaved women to take the status of the enslaved women. And that was how slavery was able to reproduce itself. They wouldn't be able to take the status of their white rapist fathers who were free, <laughs> but rather their enslaved mothers. So part of Sequarium Ventrum. And so slave societies needed reproducing women. Atlantic slavery rested upon this notion of slave heritability, that of that status being inherited, right? And this is how they built that system of racial slavery that required the presence of this kind of natural population growth from black women's uterus. And that's why they created those kinds of laws to give clear understanding that women gave birth not to children, but to profit. Angela Davis, you know, given this foundation, she said something quite profound that I've always thought about. She said that black women have had to develop a larger vision of our society than perhaps any other group. This is why she says it. She says they've had to understand white men. They've had to understand white women. They've had to understand black men. And they've had to understand themselves. So when black women win victories, it is a boost for virtually every segment of society. Coming to our conversation today, I am so, you know, I've been plotting on this interview for so long. So growing up, Joy McGowan was the person with whom everyone felt comfortable, you know, sharing um, uncomfortable topics. That's a sign of a good person there. And this is how she knew from an early age she wanted to be a therapist. And so she's currently focusing on social and emotional well-being in BIPOC communities. She passionately, and we cannot say this enough, wants to dispel the myth that therapy is only for one group of people. Thank you so much, Joy, for joining us today on Undisciplined. Thank you so much for having me. I'm like just like in awe of just listening to you <laughs> right now. I'm just really glad to be here. Oh, thank Seriously, you so I'm a big much. fan of you. Thank so, you. Thank you. You know, in African and African-American studies, especially for us at the University of Arkansas, if I were to, I think, at this point, hire somebody to teach um, right now, it would be somebody who does black mental health, African mental health. It is sorely needed. I was just talking to some administrators at the university. We've had recently two students commit suicide. A student, um, one from Nepal, one from um, Rwanda, 
commit suicide. And I'm sure the kind of work that you do is the kind of, you know, thinking perhaps we should be having at the university. But before we get into that, thank you so much, because I am certainly one of those people that I thought therapy was for white people. Mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I only went to therapy because all my white friends were talking about, oh, my shrink said this, my shrink said that. And mm-hmm. I wanted something to say, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I started going, I was like, oh, wow. So things are coming out of me. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> and so I wanted to know uh, what drove you to to being in this profession? Yeah, well, kind of like what you said earlier in the intro, um, I had a lot of people who would just share really personal things about their own personal trauma, mainly about sexual abuse that they had been through. And I remember just having to, wanting to tell them to tell someone other than me, because at this time I'm like 11 or 12 years old, and obviously what can I do for you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But there's something, right, that means that they felt safe enough to just say it to me. And I remember just wanting to, wanting them to know that they needed to keep telling their story and they had to tell it to someone who could help. Um, That's just as much as I could say at 13, whatever years old of like, someone else has to know because this is not fair. This is not right. So this is in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so I remember doing that. And then I remember growing up, I either wanted to be a therapist or a lawyer. Where did you get the idea for a therapist from? Because because of hearing other people's stories and because growing up, I had a black woman who went to my church who was a therapist herself. Really? And I think that was the only black woman that I knew growing up who was a counselor. Um, And I knew that she had seen some people in our church. Um, I had never personally seen her for anything, Um, but I, I just remember her and I knew that she was a therapist. So to know any other way there's no other way I would have known that mm-hmm. if I had not seen her right and so oftentimes what we say in our communities is that representation matters right yeah I mean there's so many stories like and she must have been given a lot of help that you saw was useful to people and you're like mm-hmm. I want to be like her mm-hmm. well it wasn't sure. an abstract idea yeah right, right. Mm-hmm. It, it pinpoint to something so it's that it was that or, or being a lawyer but just this idea of wanting to to advocate for people um, because of hearing all these stories of abuse, I remember wanting to support teens who would be caught up in the juvenile system. And I've seen a lot of that just in my family mm-hmm. of just young people being in the system and out of the system. And so knowing that I wanted to be a part of that. And I mean, Chicago, from what we, you know, people, the stereotypes that people have about mm-hmm. Chicago, you know, and we know that there is a longer historical background to that. But when you think back on it now, did that growing up in that kind of community kind of just prepare you for this kind of position? Yeah, I mean, I would say I really feel like it's just like my family Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. I would rather speak to like my family life than like the community of Chicago as a whole. Because I I felt like growing up, I did a lot of work in communities like Cabrini Green, Mm -mm. which basically no longer exists. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if I can honestly say that like I am from a community like Chicago, Mm -hmm. um, the way that people think about Chicago now, which has lots of violence and um, lots of uh, death. Like you would probably say that communities like that are probably in a constant state of grief um, and probably not very much aware of it based on how often they see people die. And so I would say for me, uh, growing up in my family and just seeing a lot of different things in my family, I know that 
I felt more drawn to this work of counseling because of like my own trauma experience and wanting to, I think in my own therapy that I've done as an adult, I've noticed that I was trying to be the help that I never got growing up, that I didn't know or think that I could give to my family um, growing up. And so it makes sense. So the things that I do now, working at the domestic violence shelter, it makes sense when I think about my family history and the things that I've done. Um, makes a lot of sense that like I was trying to work out my own my own work. Yeah, I I mean the little bit that I've read about therapy, it's like people give what they want. You know, I wish they had. Yeah, that they wish they had. Yeah. Well, and so growing up as a black girl, and so you went off to college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I went off go? to college. I went to Trinity International University, which is one of those PWIs, a predominantly white institution. And then I went to grad school there, to, so the Trinity Grad School program. Um, and then from there, my husband and I, we got married and we moved down here to Arkansas. Um, so I've been practicing for the last eight years doing therapy. Um, and while I was in Illinois, I was running the domestic violence shelter. Um, and that would have I would say that was my dream job. I've always wanted to work with um, women who have been in situations of abuse. Mm. Um, so by the, at that point, I just felt like this is all I've ever wanted to do. I don't want to do anything else. This is great. Oh, wow. and, it, so, and with that, I got to do a lot of advocating for women in the courthouse. We got to help women fill out domestic violence um, orders of protection, which is like a 22-page document oh, my that you're supposed to be able to fill out all by yourself at the courthouse if you need an order of protection from your partner. Um, And so we got to do a lot of that um, advocacy and stand up with them in court and all these things, right? So like both of my dreams got put into one, really, of I saw myself being a lawyer um, and still got to get some some experience with that in small ways. Wonderful. So I guess your background, um, your expertise in racial traumatic stress, what is that? Yeah. So the research, the research would say that racial traumatic stress is something that the body cannot metabolize. So you think about stress, we think about stress raises the levels of cortisol in our bodies, right? So research says that the more cortisol that we have, if it doesn't metabolize in our bodies, it turns into things like glucose, and glucose turns into things like what? Diabetes, high blood pressure, all these things, right? Which tend to impact. Hold on. Yep. This is is stress (laughs) that is turning stuff into glucose, and then that's how we get diabetes? Yes. Yes. Which, so when you typically think about communities of color, we are the ones who have the highest rates of what they say are preventable diseases, Mm -hmm. right? So so stress is a big deal. Now you add on that special little phrase, racial Mm -hmm. (laughs) traumatic stress. Um, It is a thing that research would say that your body doesn't know how to break down, mainly because stress is okay if it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. If your body can predict, okay, I know how this started, I know when this is going to end, we'll be okay. So some good stress like for a test is good, right? When your students have stress for their test, they're they're okay. Test is going to be over, yeah, we'll come be fine. And go. Yeah. Yeah. Racial stress doesn't actually end, right? I wake up black, I go to sleep black. I'm still black. <laughs> I'm not going to stop being black one day. And when we think about our system of how racism has infiltrated every social system that I have to make contact with just to survive, it never goes away. It is not something that my body can say like, okay, you don't have to worry about this today. You don't have to worry about that today. It's okay. You can just be black 
today. Or you can just be joy. You can just be most of the time we're always thinking about what part of me I have to bring to the table mm-hmm. when I get into different situations. Right. So this the code idea, switching. This idea of racial traumatic stress. You're, you're watching the anxiety of watching out, like, you know, I have to put on my professional voice. <laughs> I have mm-hmm. to put on yeah. all that voice. So, you know, Matthew, my um, partner here, he's a white man. Mm-hmm. Does he have racial traumatic stress? So I would say he probably doesn't think about being white all the time, though. Do I you? very rarely think about being white. We probably don't think about, like, what I have to do you don't if I'm see in this white setting. people doing foolishness on TV and think, I oh, do. my God, they're embarrassing me. I do, but I don't associate that with their whiteness necessarily. Yeah, what do you associate it with? Their other environmental causes, whether it's lack of education, lack of uh, you know, socioeconomic opportunities. So whiteness is not the first thing that comes to mind. Very rarely. Whereas for black people, it's like, yeah, Colin, oh, it's so in. communal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop like, it. <laughs> I see you. I see me. Yeah. I see my cousin. I see my aunt. I mm-hmm. see my brother. I, I saw Trayvon Martin. I saw my brother. I couldn't stop crying. Yeah. The only time that I think I'm ever hyper aware of my whiteness is when I'm one of the few white people in a room. Mm-hmm. Right. Outside mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think about it all that much, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you stressed out when you're the only white person in the room? I'm not stressed out, but I'm very conscious that mm-hmm. I'm that I'm that I'm the outsider in the room. I remember um I was living in St. Louis when Michael Brown was shot and killed. And I went to some of the protests. A lot of them would start uh, with conversations in churches. And so I would go with some of my friends who were also white. We would go into these black churches in Ferguson. And we were the four lone white people in a room of 400 people. And in that moment, you realize that, like, this isn't the church I'm used to. This isn't the the call and response that I'm used to. This isn't the talking while the preacher is talking that I'm used to. Um, in that moment, I was I was very conscious of my whiteness. But on a day-to-day basis, no, not at all. For different groups of people, this racial traumatic stress plays out in different ways. Totally different ways, right? Some clinicians have said that it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. Right? When you think of a paper cut, it's like, that's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But when you have a thousand little paper cuts, Mm -hmm. then we're in trouble. (laughs) We're going to need some help. And so do you notice different patterns of racial traumatic stress? Say, I mean, we're here in Northwest Arkansas. We have different... Um, racial groups. We have Marshallese. They've come from a traumatic background. We have Latinos. We have black people. We have white people. Do you, have you encountered any different patterns? Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure for some groups, maybe, you know, different Marshallese coming from the Marshall Islands, concerns about cancer, given what the U.S. has done over there might be a thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I would say that what I've noticed, so when I got here, I was doing some school-based work, so I worked a lot with the Marshallese population oh, when wow. I was doing school-based work. And I would say what I noticed there within that community was really the concern about health care. Um, so when I was there, it was 
a very difficult process for Marshallese families to get Medicaid. Now, I think that has kind of changed a little bit um, with some recent laws that have been passed. But back then, it was it was really difficult. And then just noticing just the again, like this communal aspect within the Marshallese culture where extended family takes care of the children. It's not just up to like right. the primary, the birthing mother or father. It's not the nuclear family as how it's the not Western society yes. does it. And, right. And we as Africans don't do it like that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And so when you see that, you know, those groups coming into mental health therapy who where mental health has like very Western ways of viewing people and family systems, it becomes a little difficult, right? Like we, we realize that we have a lot of different like bureaucratic things that keep people from accessing the support that they need. Um, I think I noticed that. Um, and then moving out of the school-based system into private practice, which is what I'm doing now, noticing that, especially in Northwest Arkansas, um, a lot of people are experiencing racial traumatic stress in the workplace. Um, a lot of people are experiencing that in their school systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, my son was five years old when he started school here in Arkansas. And I remember him saying to me, mom, it's hard being brown around white people. And I was like, it is. <laughs> me and daddy know what that's like. Right. Like he's five. Right. Um, but I think the idea that people of color probably come to a realization of their own ethnic identity a lot yeah, sooner. sooner than their white counterparts is probably real. Yeah. Right. And so he has been grappling with this idea that I'm black and maybe I don't want to be black. I think I want to be white. Yeah. Why do you have that even in your head? Right. You're probably going to have dreams about waking up white. And you, and it's probably because you've seen that white kids are treated differently than you. Right. Mm -hmm. Even at five. So any other experiences that he's had with the world has been in daycare Mm -hmm. before going to school here. Right. And so again, just to know that like my, even my five-year-old had, experiences that felt different and unfair and so unfair that mom I don't even want to be black why do I have to be this why can't I just be white yeah so I think just recognizing what it means to be the only one of you in a space which was what he was and that burden you carry I mean as a professor at the university being the black professor you're a grown woman right and you carry this but concerns too about you know the only black student who might be in my class and you know a topic about blackness come up and it's all eyes on all eyes on them Mm -hmm. or all eyes are on them anyway because they feel like they have to you know in african-american communities lift as you climb like you You feel like you have to carry the whole african-american race on Mm -hmm. your back Mm -hmm. um in order and if you do bad they're going to use you as an example to malign the mm-hmm. whole group. So that's a lot of... Pressure. I was just recently watching that Arthur Ashe interview mm. um, in the wake of all the, you know, Sitsipas and and um, Kergo's shenanigans at Wimbledon. And he, right. he was talking about McEnroe and how McEnroe had the luxury to have emotional outbursts. Mm. And Arthur Ashe could never... Mm. Sure, maybe he wouldn't want to have that because it's bad form, but even if he did, he had to be wrapped so tight as mm-hmm. a black person. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's you don't have the luxury to be mediocre. Mm-hmm. You do not. Yeah. You and know? that's exactly how therapy can feel for our community, too. It can feel like a luxury. Yeah, so absolutely. I shouldn't do that. I don't deserve that. That's mm-hmm. not for me. That's going to make me look weak. It's going to make me look weak. Um, you know, uh, people who have gone before me 
have survived it? Why do I <laughs> have to go through this kind of a stuff? As someone who just started going to therapy in the last six months, I, I know that my first couple of, of sessions, I felt a little guarded, like I couldn't, I couldn't just like spill it all out there because, mm -hmm. you know, what if he said, you know, actually that's, that's little, regular. That's a little, that's a little too much, Matthew. <laughs> why don't, why don't we, why don't we reel it back in? Yes. Do you have those experiences maybe on an even like greater level when you're interacting with, with black folks who are going to therapy the for, for the first time that they're a little guarded, they're, they're pulling back a little bit to say like, I can't, man, if I put all of this on you, like you're not going to want to see me next week. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when I have, when I've had black clients in therapy, they're just really glad to be working with a black therapist. Mm -hmm. They often talk a lot about, I'm so glad that you're here. They assume you're going to understand. This, yeah. This made it so much easier for me to come in. And mm -hmm. I've been like waiting to, to find someone. I think I've noticed too with, uh, especially I've worked with black and Latinx um, clients and they are really guarded on what they start off sharing um, until they learn like how this works. You're in the, what is this safe? Yeah. What does this look like? Like what is therapy supposed to look like? Am I doing it right? Mm -hmm. Am I, am I already messing it up? Um, am I saying too much? Am I saying too little? How much do I give it in my background? And I'm like, you're great. You're doing great. You're doing just fine. <laughs> You know, so so yeah, I, I think a lot of people have that, and like so, I'll talk about my husband. My husband's in therapy, and his therapist is white, and she's been like amazing for him. But he he does he felt that same way. Yeah, um, he had plenty of therapists before her, and I remember him saying that of like, I felt like every time I shared what I was saying was too much mm. for people that they didn't know how to handle it. Um, and now he's working with someone who is EMDR trained, and uh, I think he finally feels like she can hold the room. And mm -hmm. so I think that goes back to like what you were saying earlier about like black women have always had to be strong. Right. They've always had to like pull themselves together and hold it in. Right. They don't we don't get the luxury of like filling into our emotions. Yeah. And oftentimes I think especially when I'm working with black women, that black women are looking looking at me and saying, can she hold the room? Mm -hmm. Because I think oftentimes we are afraid of the intensity of our emotions as it comes out. Um, because oftentimes people will say, like, she's angry, she's yeah. this, she's that, right? Make these huge generalizations about who we are, what we do. Um, the reality is, like, I'm just not used yeah. to having someone hold the room mm. for all of what I'm feeling. Because yeah. I am literally carrying mm -hmm. everyone. Yep. I can you know, speak to that. Because the black women has been the mule mm. for society, for their families, for their communities for so long, they have to step into that role, mm -hmm. fulfill uh, fill the role of the husbands mm -hmm. and, you know, fathers who are absent. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think people, like, think much about if I have to step into this masculine role, I, it's, it's, it's frustrating. If you're if I'm offered no protection and care and safety and I now have to take on I cannot be feminine because I have to make all the decision and take on all these roles. But you're expecting me still to be soft and gentle and 
I am literally carrying too much and you think this is the norm so you don't mm-hmm. expect anything else. Mm-hmm. And I should do it with grace. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think we're coming to this realization now where it's like, that one is like, nah. <laughs> like, I'm tired. I am tired. I absolutely have zero time for half-assedness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, for people who cannot reciprocate support right. or that protection and care because society, you know, denigrates us anyway. We are at the bottom rung. Yeah. Below black men. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you are stepped on, it's like, you know, you're replaceable. Mm-hmm. So it's not seen as like, oh, the pillar of the community has fallen. It's either you absorb it and keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't think a lot of people give much thought to that. So you're doing therapy that is supportive of BIPOC communities. How do you structure that kind of therapy for BIPOC communities? Mm-hmm. Um, with all of my clients, I'll often ask them questions about culture and what's what's the most important thing to them that they want me to know about them and stepping into this space. Um, oftentimes I have black women specifically wanting to come in to talk about issues of like identity, mm-hmm. um, especially being in a, a place like Northwest Arkansas where they tend to be want the only black woman in their space professionally and whatnot. And so oftentimes when I'm working with, with women who want to do that, I'm always asking questions about culture, asking questions about um, what have they learned from their own family of origin about how to handle emotions whether emotions were good or bad. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask is, how were they comforted by oh, others? Dear. By myself, I don't know. Why exactly, right? You mean right? people were comforting somebody? Right, and who did they turn to mm-hmm. when they had emotions growing up? And and if it was no one but themselves or, or, or a book in my room or I would draw or um, I would listen to music, then mm-hmm. we have to, like, in a yeah. sense, start over, right? Like, yeah. One, we need to learn how to comfort you. Mm-hmm. And then two, like I often talk about tribe with people. Um, I don't believe that we're able to exist in As, this world. So let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Because, <sighs> do we treat individuals or do we treat Communities. the community? Yes, I love Western that question. therapy... <laughs> Jesus. I love Western that therapy make you believe that you're the problem. I am facing all this racial trauma, but I have to go to a therapist by myself and internalize that I'm the problem. Mm-hmm. That's what that individualizing of the treatment does. I have anxiety because I fear that I might be the next victim Of a racial assault, but no, I have to take a pill (laughs) because the anxiety is mine as opposed to a communal responsibility. What, how are therapists addressing that? I want y'all need to storm the university, storm the churches, (laughs) storm storm the the community, storm everything, (laughs) (laughs) right? I love that question because it's not just an individual, so. 
oftentimes, like I said, I work with my clients to think about who's in their tribe, who are the people that can turn to outside of me because you won't always have me and there will be um, a need for you not to have me at some point. And so I really want to make sure that people feel like they have a community that can turn to that continues to support them outside of me. Um, so I think in that way, other ways that I've seen how working with the individual has impact on families and families I believe have impact on communities is when I have my teens say, you know, since I started therapy, I've been talking to my grandma and my grandma was like, I think I want to go get a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. Yo, black mama, grandma Mm -hmm. wants to go see a therapist? I'm like, yeah, Miss Joy. I'm like, look at you. Look at how you impacted. You were the change that they were Because you told them the story. Wow. That this wasn't so scary. That this was okay. That this is what my therapist taught me, right? And so I think... And I, I think that's probably because of how communal we are, though, as a yeah. people, right? Mm-hmm. Right? That, like, grandma is more likely to listen to her her baby girl yeah. say, like, no, grandma, this really worked. And like, the thing that happened to you, you didn't deserve that. I know back in 1955 that was fine, but mm-hmm. that wasn't your fault. And it happened to me, too. And I went to the therapist, and the therapist said so and so and so. Do you find that when you interact with with clients um, that some of that white expectations of them uh, is, you know, ingrained in who they are? Um, So when we think about like this individualism um, and this idea that's like, you know, drilled into, you know, white evangelicals heads, certainly this idea that like you have this personal relationship with Jesus and you were responsible for that. And, you know, it's not about religion. It's not about community. It's about you as a person. Do you find that you kind of have to peel off some of those elements with your clients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say like that's 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 my own work. Right. That's part of my own work. Because I I remember having that same view as a black Christian woman, mm. feeling like all I needed was Jesus. I didn't need anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's false. <laughs> it's not true at all. Um, but it took me doing my own work to realize that I had to peel that back for myself, right? And so I think oftentimes everyone, I think everybody comes to therapy in some ways thinking that, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to do this thing. Uh I know what some things are that are important to me. And then they start pulling back the layers and realizing, oh, there's a lot much more here than what I thought. So I, w- I would just say that that's, that's true for myself, that I've seen that true mm-hmm. in my own in my own therapy work that I've done with my, the therapists that I've had over the years in different spaces in my life. And, and I can see that being true for some clients of clients just trying to um, learning, right? I, th- I think that's what therapy is about, though. Therapy I think we've been talking about therapy in this way of like, you should go to therapy because of the trauma that you experience, mm-hmm. right? I would venture to say that maybe not, there are some black people who would say that they have not experienced racism. They don't have a paradigm for that, um, for whatever reason of how they grew up. And so would I say that they still should go to therapy? Yeah, I would say they should still go to therapy because not every white person goes to therapy just because their grandmother died, right? right? White people go into therapy just to better themselves so, as an yeah. individual, right? And so this idea that therapy is this explorative place for me. 
Right. It's almost you, you go to therapy. I'm, I'm trying to think of a parallel here. It's like, you know, you're supposed to wear shoes, yeah. right? You're supposed to wear shoes. But if you get a really good pair of shoes that fit well and they make your back hurt less and you feel comfortable in them, you realize, man, I've been really missing out. I've been buying this cheap ass <laughs> pair of shoes for so long. Now that I've got a really good pair of shoes. Why did I not do this earlier? Why did I do this earlier? Is there yeah. an element of that that you yeah. see as well? Yeah, I like that, right? Like therapy, which is how some people try to talk about therapy now, right? That therapy is a part of, a part about all health, right? Mm-hmm. If if you have a cold, you will go and take some medication or figure out what you need to do. Maybe not all black people, right? Because I think some black people that I've talked to have grown up where if you weren't dying, mm-hmm. you were fine. Right. We're going to figure this out at home. If you drink some um, ginger ale. All and, types of things. Yeah, and you go to sleep. <laughs> right. So I think, so th- So even to that point, like, I think communities of color are trying to find, like, we need to find language for this. There's there's no language for this. For us to say, like, that this, this is important, right? Or this could probably, like, increase your, your quality of life. Well, taking it outside of that lens of it's a luxury, that, yeah, that it, it may be a luxury monetarily it's so for some people. Associated with whiteness too, yeah. mm-hmm. and whiteness is feels like a luxury. Feels like a luxury to them. Like that proximity or distance away from whiteness means that you know it shouldn't be something that you do regularly. Yes, you have to reach a certain maybe level of prominence or something in order to like do this. It's yeah. like, man, I grew up barefoot in Jamaica. I, no, I'm going to see a therapist for how much? Despite whatever you're going through, you just think it's like, there are hungry people in Jamaica. Like, why am I spending this amount of money mm-hmm. going to a therapist? You know what yeah. I mean? Because I'm it's, a little anxious because I cry just a little yeah, bit too I had much. A, I had a panic attack in my office. I had a breakdown. No, I can I should, mm-hmm. uh, straighten up. I can, you know, mm-hmm. instead of thinking this is taking care of me, you th- you see it as a luxury. What are the hallmarks of emotionally and socially unhealthy BIPOC communities? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. As I was thinking about this question, I wrote down, like, immediately I just see a group of people surviving from one thing to the next. Moving from task to task. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I think that when we are in unhealthy environments or in an unhealthy space as individuals, we can see ourselves um, feeling stuck, struggling with our own emotions, struggling to like acknowledge our emotions, struggling to acknowledge pain when we feel pain. Um, we are typically struggling to set boundaries. We're struggling with issues like rest. Um, we are struggling just to find joy. Because we need validation. So we have to keep working. Girl. So I can't stop. I can't no, slow why? down. That's how I get my validation through Absolutely. work. Absolutely. And I think oftentimes, too, people are struggling with issues of being. Um, who am I? Why am I here? Knowing yourself, knowing right. who you are, knowing what your needs are. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just found out my needs last year. Uh, Listen, all of us. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that sounds about right. That sounds, so how do you attend to such communities? Yeah. Um, again, I feel like this is a great question, right? Because we're talking about that. Uh, complexity between treating the individual and the community. I um, feel so like in my own practice, I try to 
attend to the community by being able to make myself available to the community by being a part of so I'm the secretary of the Northwest Arkansas NAACP chapter and making myself available to things like this like speaking engagements that I get to continue to have the conversation about mental health and culture and why that is important and then when I'm working with the individual recognizing that the individual in my room like they do not exist within a vacuum they go back to a people to a family to a friend to a community they go back to a particular context and so I want them to bring whatever they need to bring into this room from their context so that I have a better understanding of what happens when they leave. Um, it's not enough for me to help them regulate their emotion in the room. I want to know that they tried regulating their emotion outside of the space, that they tried it. And when they was at that family reunion and that aunt said that thing that they always say that always gets underneath their skin. And then they did that thing that we we talked about in therapy of like counting to five and re-regulating their, their bodies. And, oh, is that what you're right? supposed to do? Right. Like this, <laughs> that they tried these things outside of the therapy office, right? Like, the whole cookout. <laughs> right. You don't have to go tip for tip. I think that's the thing you're not supposed to do. Oh, you're not do. supposed to do that? Oh. Hmm. I need to book my next appointment. Uh. <laughs> What has the response been from the community um, when they when they hear about what you're doing? Maybe they've heard your podcast, um, which we produce here at yes. KUAF. Um, what, is, what has the response been from the community? Yeah, the response has been really positive, y'all. So um, the NPR radio, we were number one pick, like editor's pick um, for our episode on grief. Um, we've had over 3,000 people engage with our episodes. Um, our most popular episodes has been on one, the, the first one that talks about who we are and what we do, um, where we end up talking about our moms in that episode of just like how we saw them as resilient black women for us and then our other episodes on um, grief and another episode on being a black woman um, those were just uh, really powerful episodes for the community that listened to us um, we've had people reach out to us via Instagram and say like I just want to start supporting you on a monthly basis mm. because I believe in the work that y'all are doing um, and they used to live here in Northwest Arkansas um, they live in another state now and um, they just reached out to us on Instagram I remember when when our podcast went live through KUAF remember we got lots of emails from our website of people just thanking us mm. for being here. When we went live with KUAF for our podcast, we had hosted an event called Grief, a conversation on grief with some local musical artists and um, art artists um, locally. And um, I remember people saying like, I'm so glad that y'all had this conversation on grief because I felt represented in mm. this conversation. The conversation led by us, which Denise and I were both black women. And then everybody else on the pot, on the, um, on that episode was either a person of color we had one white woman and I remember all the feedback we got from that was just so many people just feeling like I saw myself in this conversation I'm so glad that you spoke about immigration you spoke about how like we're grieving too mm -hmm. because our families are snatched away from us oh, um, wow. so it's been really really supportive so the diverse face of grief yeah, yeah. It's yeah. been really good. When it goes back to that idea that you were talking about at the beginning of this, right? This idea that representation matters. It that, matters. That being able to hear yourself in those stories or see 
similar situations from people who look like you make a difference and, and really opens you up to this idea that like, it's okay for me to feel these feelings too. And, and to have these emotions and to have, you know, one of my favorite episodes that you guys did was about joy and yeah. talking about finding joy in those sorts of things and being able to name it and claim it and, and do that sort of work is really impactful. What would you like to leave us with? This has been such an amazing conversation. This has been a therapy session for me. I don't know if you feel that way. I Listen, therapists are doing God's work. Yeah. I love therapists. I, that's why I could not wait to talk to Joy. Oh, thank you. Okay, leaving you with something. I would say I have recently been in a space of learning how to rest. And if I had to leave the your listeners with anything, I hope that they too invest in their own ability to rest. Thank you so much, Joy, for stopping by on Discipline. Thank you so much. I sincerely enjoyed this. Thank you. Undiscipline is hosted by me, Karee Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undiscipline for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.